Hey everybody, this is Dylan, your favorite podcast pal. Before we start the show today, I just have a couple of things I need to say real quick. Number one, our guest today, Chris, was having a little problem with his mic during the recording for this. Uh, We fixed it a lot in post, but you still might notice a couple skips here and there. It's just one of those things that happens sometimes, and so please forgive us for that. Also, you might notice that we're talking about upcoming holidays, even though the holiday season has already passed. That's because we recorded this right before we went on break. Uh, We don't actually have the clout and manpower to be able to actually pump these out the same day we record them. So so a little, uh, little peek behind the curtain there and how we go through this process. And finally, and this is really important, I have to ask you a big favor, listener. I need you to go on to Twitter and go to at D.Y. Lockwood and tell me if Phantom Thread is any good. Like, I love Daniel Day-Lewis. It's supposed to be his last movie, so I'm likely going to see it anyway at some point. But it looks really weird, and I'm not sure if it's weird in the kind of way that I really appreciate. So, yeah, please let me know how it is. And after enough stalling for time, on with the show. Hello and welcome to Z Prime on the Grid, a show about issues concerning the energy industry. I'm your host, Dylan Lockwood. One of our regulars, Christine, is not going to be here this week. She's doing some family stuff in Kansas City, and we look forward to having her back soon. But we do have Aaron Hardick, research analyst, here with us. How are you doing this week, Aaron? Good. I am bummed Christine is not here. She really um, forces witty banter out of me. Um, So upset to not have Christine here, but Christmas is right around the corner, Dylan. So it's hard to be... Um, and non-cheerful spirits right now. That's true. Unless it's like cold and rainy like it is here, then it it just feels like more fall. Yeah, Uh, we're having some of that cold and rainy weather uh, down here in Austin, but it's still, I mean, it's almost Christmas, Dylan. Only, what, seven days away now? That's true. We, uh, But we've got a very special guest on the podcast this week. From ice cream giant Ben and Jerry's, we have... Chris Miller, who is the Social Mission Activism Manager. How are you today, Chris? I'm great, Dylan. Uh, thanks for asking. Uh, it's great to be on the show. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for coming. Uh, Social Mission Activism Manager. I-, I like that title. I bet it looks good on a business card. So why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your role at Ben & Jerry's? Great. So, uh, yeah, it is a job title uh, for which I'm quite proud. I, I, I reckon I have one of the best jobs in the world. Uh, you know, Ben & Jerry's, uh, in addition to selling the best ice cream in the world, has an almost 40-year history that's really rooted in the values of our, our co-founder, Jerry Greenfield, of using the power of our business and the connection that we have with our fans and consumers. Uh, to advocate for progressive social change. And so my job at the company is really to design the, the, the fan-facing activism and advocacy campaigns that are kind of rooted in a, a set of corporate values that we have here. Uh, and so I, I kind of, you know, 
there aren't a lot of people that do what I do in the corporate world. So I feel incredibly lucky to get to do this work. It's particularly met with the best ice cream in the world. I sort of consider myself a, a, a campaigner that, that works in a for-profit ice cream company. So we are predominantly an energy podcast when we're not talking about Star Trek or Denver grocery stores. But I'm sure some people are thinking, wait a minute. Why is there an ice cream guy on the podcast? Mostly because he agreed to give us free samples of upcoming flavors, scripted joke, but also because, Chris, your company has been making waves in energy, specifically with regards to renewables. A few years back, you partnered with NRG Energy in Houston, Texas, and before that with Native Energy in Vermont, working to reduce the carbon footprint of your factories and your supply chain. You produce biofuel with a machine called, if I'm reading this right, the Chunkinator. Chunkinator. <laughs> okay. And both uh, Ben and Jerry's and your parent company, Unilever, have long-term sustainability plans and yearly internal environmental reports. And most notably, Ben and Jerry's is committed to activism and combating climate change. That's no secret. It's right on the front of your website. And that's ultimately why we wanted you here, Chris, uh, to explore the role of corporate partnerships and large-scale activism in the energy sector, especially with how important the climate change discussion is, both from a business perspective and from a human perspective. So my first question for you would be, uh, what is Ben and Jerry's currently doing in the energy space and what do you hope to do in the energy space? Well, I, there is much to do in the energy space. And I think there are sort of two ways or, or sort of two buckets that I, I might suggest that we uh, that we we focus our work. Um, the first is to your point around our supply chain. Right? I mean, let's be uh, let's be honest. Our business has a sizable uh, carbon footprint. We manufacture. Uh, dairy products and and um, dairy farming has a uh, high uh, gas emission footprint to it, uh, particularly because of methane uh, on farms. And you know we we manufacture a product that then requires uh, staying frozen throughout the entire uh, uh, supply chain as it moves from our manufacturing facility ultimately to your freezers. Uh, it's also true that. We manufacture ice cream in Vermont, and and we ship that ice cream to pretty far flung locations around the globe. So we're we're proud to use Vermont milk and cream uh, to manufacture ice cream that we're selling in places as far away as Christchurch and Sydney. So our our business is global; it has a sizable footprint, and 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 therefore uh, we feel an obligation uh, to to do what we can. Uh, to mitigate that footprint. And so uh, uh, we're looking for ways across the supply chain that start on farms uh, and, and working to reduce the, the, the greenhouse gas footprint of our dairy farms. And, and there are a number of ways in which we're focused on doing that. One is around on-farm practices. So uh, thinking about how do we increase uh, the, 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 the sequestration ability of the soil on our dairy farms uh, to hold and capture more carbon. Uh, and so you look at practices like uh, cover cropping, crop rotating, uh, winter cropping, etc. cetera. Uh, you want to look at things like uh, uh, sexy focus on things like manure management. So obviously, you know, one of the biggest sources of, of greenhouse gases on dairy farms uh, comes from the front end and the back end of cows. They emit a lot of methane. Uh, and so looking at ways to both uh, uh, reduce 
methane on the front end and the back end. On the front end, you focus on things like the feed uh, that the cow eats. Uh, there are additives and adjustments to feed that can uh, reduce enteric emissions and then ensuring that that uh, the manure management and nutrient management on the farm is managed in such a way uh, that you can uh, capture some of the methane that would be associated with it. And we've done that through a couple of technologies. One is farm biodigesters that turn uh, uh, methane into clean energy. gets put onto the grid. Another is through a technology uh, called manure separators. Uh, separates the liquids and solids and turns them into usable resources, captures the methane. So focused on farms, uh, obviously uh, another important part of uh, the the footprint of the business along that sort of value chain is the manufacturing. Uh, And so we're looking at driving efficiencies day to day in the manufacturing plants, but we're also focused on uh, ensuring that, that we're accessing as much clean energy to support the manufacturing of our products as possible. Uh, We did, uh, as you mentioned, install a a solar array in partnership with NRG and our Waterbury manufacturing facility. That that solar array generates about a third of the electricity that we use at our Waterbury plant. And, And I will just also add that we're incredibly fortunate in Vermont to have an exceedingly green electricity grid. Um, it is, uh, the, the top one or two cleanest electricity grids in the country. Uh, and so uh, that is one of the many benefits of, of being headquartered and, and focusing our manufacturing in the Green Mountain State. Uh, so so that's good. We're, it, and then, you know, we continue to focus along the supply chain. Obviously, refrigeration uh, is something that can be greenhouse gas intensive. We We have been uh, uh, strong advocates for the uptake and adoption of, of um, CFC-free refrigeration technology, uh, and, and Unilever has been a leader there, and, and so we have been, uh, as we replace freezer cabinets in our out-of-home business, and, and you know, um, in, in convenience stores, et cetera, we're replacing them with cleaner, greener freezers. Uh, which helps reduce our footprint. And so we're really, you know, taking a, a, a systematic approach, understanding where the impacts are across the life cycle of the business and, and focused on, uh, you know, a, a, a deliberate and, and methodical way of reducing that footprint. The final thing uh, I'll throw in there is we did institute a few years ago an income tax at Ben and & Jerry's. And so we have instituted a fee uh, for every metric ton of, of greenhouse gases that we emit, again, across the full life cycle of the business, from, from farm to end of life of our packaging. And that creates a fund that we use to invest in the supply chain to reduce the footprint of the business. So that's sort of a, uh, a brief sketch and sort of how we think about reducing the, the, the impacts that our business has, particularly around greenhouse gases. And then, you know, the other unique thing that we do, which I'm happy to talk about, is our advocacy work. Chris, yeah, I have a question that's it's really interesting. So Z-Prime, we, we primarily focus on doing uh, market research in uh, the energy industry, but we've also recently branched out into doing some surveying of energy commercial and industrial customers. So like Ben and Jerry's, um, and you just walked us through um, how you can start 
delivering um, sustainable solutions across the supply chain. Um, but at a global company, I imagine, you know, that's a big effort. And and what we're starting to see is these corporations, um, they have people designated to working towards sustainable um, energy goals. Um, but that kind of was just like a, a side project. Now we're really starting to see um, the sustainable area within businesses start to creep into the core business and, you know, create operational efficiency through new technology. So um, my question for you here is, um, how do you start to manage that? Is that done on, you know, like a global level? Is it done on a national level? How does Ben & Jerry's um, manage uh, their energy and sustainability goals to make sure that those strategies are really being carried out to create efficiencies? Yeah, I mean, a couple of thoughts. I, I mean, one is you you really have to run through a, a sort of detailed materiality analysis of kind of where the impacts are across the supply chain, right? Ultimately, you want to fish where the fish are. So, um, you know, our, our pint containers, um, while they are produced with FSC certified pulp, they are not neither recyclable nor are they compostable. And the truth is, you know, in many ways, that pint container uh, is something that our fans and consumers touch more than anything else, right? And so they might associate the fact that they're having to throw that coated paperboard into the landfill versus recycling or composting as comprising an important impact of the business. But we know from having looked across value chain that that the piece of the footprint that that packaging represents at end of the life is very small. And so we're focused in places that might be less obvious to our consumer base, but that we know is where the bulk of the footprint is. So I think, you know, you need to start with, you know, where are the impacts? And then I think there are several buckets that we know that represent the big chunk of our footprint. Then you have to figure out how do you most cost effectively drive reductions in the supply chain? So, you, you, you know, you're thinking about, you know, what what is the sort of cost per metric ton of reduction? Because, you know, some some reductions will come cheaper than others. Uh, and And, you know, you would expect that that analysis around the price of reducing emissions at various aspects of the supply chain to change over time, to your point, Aaron, as new technologies and innovations uh, come uh, to market. So, you know, there are many things that are in our control, you know, outbound uh, uh, transportation represents if I'm recalling something like 15 to 17% of our, the, 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 the greenhouse gas footprint of our business. Now, there is very little beyond sort of maximizing root efficiency that we can do to, to reduce that piece of our carbon footprint at this time. But, you know, if Elon Musk has his way and the electric trucks come to market, that will have a profound impact on that piece. So, so I think you know it, it's understanding where your footprint is. It's being deliberate about in, ensuring that you're making investments in things that are going to lower your emissions at the uh, at, in the most efficient way. And then, uh, you know, truthfully, I think what is driving a lot of this at the corporate level is you know 
companies have, have set a bunch of goals for themselves. And, and now we have to kind of go out and figure out how we deliver on those goals. And then ensuring that you're, you know, you're measuring this stuff year over year, uh, over time, right? You're going you're gonna to manage what you're able to measure and then uh, be transparent about it. You'll do what you disclose. And so I think, you know, measure it, just, you know, report on it, disclose it. Uh, and, and, and that, you know, that will kind of continue to drive the, the progress that we see in the corporate world. It's funny that you meant that you mentioned, you were talking about how Vermont was one of the most, and one of the most sustainable grids because, uh, your utility, uh, Green Mountain Power, the CEO, uh, Mary Powell, she's, uh, kind of a superstar in the energy wow. world these days. Uh, she's actually nominated for our thought leader of the year award that we give out in March. Uh, but, and then they, they, they've got this, uh, promotion going on right now where if you buy a, an electric vehicle in the month of December and green mountain power, power will give you a free in-home charger. Um, so there, there's, there's some, there's some free advertising for electric vehicles, but I, uh, yeah, I, I was curious cause you brought up the, the truck, um, just in your opinion, uh, what, if you think that electric vehicles are, a are a, or a piece of the piece of the energy puzzle because I saw on your website that there was a, an article published on your website like four days ago documenting news in regards to electric vehicles. So yes, on electric vehicles, I think at Ben and Jerry's we're we're quite bullish on electric vehicles. We understand that we have all of the the technology that we need, I believe, to to really take the electricity sector to low to no emissions in relatively quick order, right? Investments in efficiency and, and clean energy like wind and solar can, can, you know, when coupled with storage systems can take, you know, the electricity grid pretty quickly to near zero emissions. So uh, we, we, you know, that, that's, we're incredibly optimistic about that. I think that then leads to, what do you do with transportation? It is, we don't have sort of clean, renewable liquid transportation fuels. Uh, and, and so it seems to make all the sense in the world that you you shift the transportation sector to as much a degree as possible to electrification. So as the grid becomes cleaner, you increasingly transition transportation networks to the electricity grid. You know, as part of the climate advocacy campaign that we ran uh, in the run-up to COP21 in Paris in 2015, we replaced one of our uh, diesel-powered scoop trucks with a a Tesla Model S that we kitted out with freezers, could serve about 1,500 servings of ice cream out of the back of the thing, and it drove around the country um, getting people to take action in support of a, a, a binding deal out of Paris. Uh, but but we we got the Tesla not just because it was this car that was zero emissions, but that because we thought that 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 electrified vehicle represented the future, right? That that the Tesla Model S is not just an electric car; it is the car that Consumer Reports rated the best car ever. It's made in America. You know, Tesla's vertically integrated. They're making the parts and assembling the vehicles uh, in in California. It really shows that this transition to a a low carbon economy is 
is not about restrictions and it's not about uh, having to uh, reduce the quality of life for our society, our country, but it's actually a huge opportunity. It's an opportunity to innovate, to create better things, whether it's the Tesla Model S uh, or, or, you know, energy storage systems. It's, it, it, it is a, a, a huge opportunity that can be a real catalyst for economic growth moving forward. I think that's why you see so many businesses not just focused in their own supply chain to reduce their footprint, but actively becoming advocates for, for economy-wide policy solutions on climate change. Not only do they not see those approaches and policies as bad for business or a drag on the economy, I think they see them as an accelerator for economic growth. Who would you say is the driving force for the kind of change uh, you want to see? Is it people, you know, people within utilities and uh, people within utilities, uh, regulators, corporate partners, tech companies and startups, or just everyday people willing to fight for their values? I really do think everyone has a role to play in this thing. I, I think... I think mobilizing the public, not just to change consumption habits or make better shopping decisions, but, but to become advocates for policy change, to, 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 to be willing to have a point of view uh, on the politics of this stuff is incredibly important. I think the voice of the business community on this is absolutely critical. For better or for worse, and I think oftentimes it's for worse, uh, business has a, a uh, influence over our, our policymakers in a way that I think is often focused solely on their own narrow self-interest. Uh, but I think this issue, uh, and, and to be sure, I, as I suggested, I think this is a huge economic opportunity for both the economy and businesses. But I think for, for companies and businesses that are members of groups like BICEP that we're a member of, Businesses for Energy Policy, a group of large, well-known brands and companies organized by the Boston-based not-for-profit series that includes Ben and & Jerry's and Seven Generation and, and Starbucks and uh, Mars and, and, and even our parent company, Unilever, uh, I think are incredibly impactful and have been, you know, a part of helping uh, uh, really bring on board uh, uh, some Republican policymakers uh, and I think have also been uh, advocates uh, and, and been important in state and regional policies around climate change. So I think the business community is incredibly important from a policy perspective, but then also in terms of the actions they're taking in their own supply chain, right? They become proof points. This idea that at Ben and Jerry's, we have an internal price on carbon. You know, what we're saying is that one, that's a, a useful mechanism for, for, you know, creating a fund that allows us to invest in reducing our footprint, but it also becomes a proof point, right? That if, if this was a bad idea for our business, we wouldn't be doing it. It actually makes business sense, and that's why we're doing it. So, uh, you know, that's incredibly important. I, I can't, I can't at all underestimate the importance of the advocacy groups, whether it's, you know, the Sierra Club, uh, Greenpeace, uh, 350.org. You know, the work that these groups do to elevate the issues, to mobilize people, to, to catalyze action is equally important. 
and and you know policymakers who are willing to 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 sort of be leaders on this. I think of you know Senator Whitehouse, who is a, a champion on this issue, and 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 sort of leads the charge in the United States Senate on this issue, and and also. He's a strong proponent of businesses stepping up their game. So I think everyone has play in this thing. And it is not clear to me that any any one piece of this movement is is by definition any more important than the other. I think we all have to work together to get there. Chris, I, I totally agree with you. You know, I think this is um, an effort that's, that falls or the responsibility falls on the shoulders of a lot of people um, here. But one thing I did want to ask you about, because it's kind of uh, come up a few times uh, throughout our podcast today, was this idea this idea of consumer engagement. So you mentioned earlier when we were talking about efficiencies in the supply chain, um, that the consumer sometimes thinks like the environmental impact that they have um, by buying a Ben & Jerry product is, is that, card, that carton that they throw away. Um, at the end of the day, after they consume the product. And then you also just mentioned um, consumers, you know, becoming more advocates. So how does Ben & Jerry's become, um, how do you drive consumer education? And, and why do you really feel like that's important? Um, and how do, you, how do you do that effectively? I think that's a big challenge a lot of businesses are having today is effectively educating consumers um, so that this yes. can be a mutual strategy moving forward. It's a really good question. Sort of, how do you engage fans in a way, you know, consumers in a way that's that's meaningful on these issues? And and Dylan referenced one of the ways in which we do it when he when he touched on the blog that we produced on electric cars. We have built a a, a, a deliberate uh, and and strategic capacity to engage our consumers. We call them fans. Uh, in the campaigns that we run and around the issues that we care about. So we have built an in-house publishing capacity. We're producing probably three to 400 pieces of long-form written content a year. We're providing, uh, producing video content, uh, and we're promoting that content across all of our digital and, and, and social channels. Uh, and what we hope to do with that content is not just to educate our fans and consumers, not just engage them with this content, but ultimately drive them to take an action, to become involved in these issues. So in terms of the, the advocacy activism work that we do, we really take the lead from our, our, our partners within the movement, uh, you know, our NGO partners. We go to them. Uh, we want to understand what the larger strategy is. Uh, uh, within the NGO community and and particularly around building a movement in this case around climate climate justice and and then and then we want to figure out how can we best leverage the the tools that we have uh, uh, to connect with our fans to ultimately support their strategic objectives and so we really do let our part take the lead on strategy. And, and, you know, I think it is a profound opportunity. It, it is, I like to call it, and, and I mean this in the nicest possible way, uh, the, the great bait and switch, right? People, people love our ice cream. Uh, they come to us because they love chocolate chip cookie dough, Chunky Monkey, or Cherry Garcia. And, and that then provides us an opportunity to not only engage with them around this great ice cream, but really to bring them in into these campaigns that we run. Uh, and, and that is 
you know, and at a moment when they are, you know, typically in a happy place. Our brand are, uh, has a has a fun, funky, engaging culture. Our product brings smiles to people's face. It is a it is a great tool through which we can engage uh, fans on these issues. And and so it's it's a it's a I think it's a big opportunity. I mean, you know, and and if I think about what we did, for example in the run-up to COP25 in partnership with Avaz, uh, you know, a, a global online advocacy organization that that focuses uh, a, a lot of resources on climate. Whether you're Avaz or whether you're Greenpeace or, you know, uh, the NRDC, those groups speak, you know, in many cases to the choir, right? They're preaching to the choir, their fan base, their supporters, by definition, uh, believe that the environment is something worth protecting and taking action on climate change is important. You know, our supporter base, our fan base, you know, what do we know about them? They love ice cream. And and so we we connect with uh, uh, an unusual or unlikely set of, of folks that we hope we can bring into these movements. And it's a, you know, it's a big opportunity. And I think, you know, we've the, the tools and channels that we have at our disposal are ever evolving. And I think we have ways to execute these campaigns today that Ben would have only, you know, couldn't even dreamed of 35, 40 years ago. And I think technology uh, will continue uh, uh, to drive changes in the way in which we can engage our fans and consumers around these campaigns and make these relationships uh, uh, with our fans even more impactful over time. I guess th my next question is less one about policy and more one uh, of philosophy anyway. Uh, so, But I saw a talk you did this year at a sustainable brands conference in Madrid. I, I saw it on the internet. I, I didn't go to Spain, but... Uh, you should have gone to Spain. Uh, I, I would have loved to, but they, they wouldn't pay to send me there and... They don't, and I don't make enough. <laughs> there you uh, talked about uh, something called brand activism, which might sound a little cynical to some people because corporate branding and grassroots activism on the surface might seem like polar opposites because the ideal of a movement is somebody or a small group is somebody start with nothing, but with, they don't have anything but a voice and a vision. And then like-minded people will slowly join them until they become a force and they can shout, you know, we're together. This is our message. And maybe that message loses a little something when there's fine print below that says sponsored by Coca-Cola. I mean, that's a cynical interpretation. And as Aaron knows, I'm no cynic. Uh, but uh, so why don't you tell me, because I'm sure you have a differing view, uh, in your own words, what corporate activism is for you and how you bridge that gap between corporate interest and grassroots activism. Yeah, you're, I support your cynicism and skepticism. I think, I think, that's a fair point. I, I think there are companies that do this well, and there are companies that have fallen on their face trying to do this. And there are companies that are simply trying to, you know, market a product or service, uh, you know, through crass cause-related marketing. What I would say about the work that we do that I think allows us both authentic and credible in the work that we do is one, we always have partners in this work, right? So whether that's Avaz, whether that's on, on issues around refugee rights, it's the International Rescue Committee, 
whether it's 350.org. We always have external partners that are the issue experts and that we look to for strategy. So that's number one. Number two, these advocacy campaigns that we run at Ben and Jerry's are, are really different than the rest, the, the way in which we approach the rest of our business. We are always a fans first company. We want to surprise and delight our fans. And, you know, we have a saying around here that, that we love our fans more than they love us. And so we want to deliver uh, on what our fans want. On the advocacy side, that is the one place of the business where we are not fans first. We do not start with uh, what, what do our fans care about? You know, what are the issues they care about? What, as we think about what campaigns we're going to run and issues we're going to support, it does not start with who are our fans and what do they care about? It starts internally with our own corporate values. It starts with what are the things we care about? What's the change we seek to make in the world? And then how do we design a fans first campaign that engages them and ultimately action on those issues? So what that means is you may disagree with our point of view on climate change, but it's our view, right? It's, it's, it's a deeply held belief of ours that climate change is real, that it is a risk to our business, that it represents a huge economic opportunity for communities and for our economy and our country. And, and you can disagree with us. But it's harder to say that we're doing this for crass marketing purposes. You know, and we don't, when we're driving people to take action, we're really, you know, we really are. And, and I think if you look at our campaigns and you look at the content we create and the thoughtfulness that we, with which we approach these campaigns, it's hard to look at it and say it's crass marketing. Are there critics of ours who tell us to shut up and just sell me ice cream? Absolutely. And that's the sort of price of, of doing this kind of work is, by definition, if you're going to take a position on an issue that's controversial, there will be people that will tell you to shut up or that they disagree with you or they're never going to buy your ice cream again. And that's okay with us. Uh, uh, you know, we believe this is important stuff. And we believe, you know, for every person who says they're never going to buy our ice cream again, we're also creating fans who, you know, are uh, we deeply connect with around this shared set of values. So, you know, uh, I People will criticize us. People very infrequently suggest that what we're doing is either inauthentic or a crass marketing campaign. And why why do you think that is, Chris? Well, because I think if you think about, you know, and I don't want to call out any specific brands, but there have been a number of brands that have sort of fallen on their face recently trying to do some sort of cause related marketing. Right. And, and I think what those what those what those efforts are, are a sort of uh, um, uh, an attempt to connect with their consumer base around a value or an idea. Right. I think. They weren't trying to drive a larger change. They weren't a part of a broader movement. They didn't have a call to action for people who 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 saw those, you know, ad uh, or videos on YouTube. Our campaigns are about making change in the world. We are not trying to build brand equity by telling you that climate change is real and, and encouraging you 
to join a vase in taking action on climate change, trying to get you to take action on climate change. And, and that is, you know, we build a strategy to do that. And so I, I think that's why it comes off as credible and authentic, because that's really what we're trying to do. Now, I'll be honest with you, if we do that really well, in a way that is credible and authentic and impactful, right? Because ultimately we want to win. We want to be impactful. And if we do that, I believe that it builds brand equity, that it makes people fans of our brand to know that we, you know, we care about something in the world and we're willing to use the power of our company to be forceful advocates for that change. I, I, I do think that is good for our business. But I think if we tried to design campaigns that were about building brand equity, we'd fall on our face and it would not have an impact. Do you think, and I understand, you know, this could just be speculation, but do you think for those brands that went out there and did build campaigns just, or built campaigns to build brand equity, do you think that they did it intentionally just to build brand equity? Or do you think they went in and they said, we have these values, but they just weren't exactly how to translate the values into a campaign? Have you seen Have you seen that at all, that disconnect between how do you actually create the campaign? I, I think it's hard for me to know. If you look at some of these brands that have had issues over the last year or so, I find myself as one who works in a for-profit company and sits in meetings at this company. It's hard to imagine how anyone at any of these companies would have would have looked at that and, and watched that creative and thought to themselves, boy, this is a really good idea. But who am I to sort of judge sort of the motivation behind how some of these campaigns came to life? Of course. You know, I, I think, but but I do think that, those are prime examples of cause-related marketing. They are not corporate activism. Cause-related marketing is about marketing your brand, your product, around a cause or a value, right? So it, it, it starts with, who are my consumers? What is their demo? What is an issue that they care about? And how do I talk to them about that issue? Right. And, and so that's where you that's where it becomes inauthentic, because that brand or company is not engaging you around something that that they feel strongly about. They're trying to engage you around something that they think you feel strongly about. And there's like that's that's, just, that's not an authentic approach. All right. Uh, we're running low on time here. So uh, but I've got one final very critical question for you. So uh, in 2015, uh, it was a big year for Ben and Jerry's climate activism. And to mark that, they came out with a flavor called Save Our Swirled. It had uh, raspberry, marshmallow, raspberry swirls, uh, and then uh, little chocolate chunks and white chocolate chunks uh, in it. And yet, uh, our swirled has not been saved, but I can't find this flavor anymore. And it's not in the, it's not in the flavor graveyard. So it, which are the ones that might be slated to come back at some point. So am, am I just, am I just out of luck here? Cause I really liked that flavor is the best one you guys ever made. 
Wow. It 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 was a it was a great flavor and an unusual flavor at that, you know, the kind of raspberry swirl, the white chocolate chunks. We don't have a lot of flavors that that combining white chocolate and fruit. It, it was a strong flavor. Uh, I regret to tell you that it was a limited batch flavor, which is often what we do with our 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 campaign related flavors. Uh, they are a limited run. Uh, so once they're done, they're done. Uh, and, and it's also true that those limited batch flavors do not end up in the flavor graveyard. The flavor graveyard is reserved for, um, flavors that were permanent and that were, that was discontinued. Um, but you know, it, 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 it was a great flavor and, uh, you know, we are an ice cream company. And so ultimately being able to, to bring to life the campaign in one of our products. I mean, you know, the truth is more people engage with us in freezer cases than anywhere else. And so having a sort of flagship, you know, product that represents the campaign and by the way, you know, spins off a, a bit of a small royalty to our partners. So, you know, creates a little bit of uh, a dough for our partners to keep doing their work is a great sort of symbol of, of some of the advocacy campaigns that we've run. Oh, that's a shame because I really liked it. I'm sorry. It's okay. Aaron, what's Aaron, what's your what's your favorite ice cream flavor? Okay, so I'm going to have to be honest here and I don't want to cause too much controversy. Dylan, I think you may know what I'm about to say. Um, but I I grew up in Texas and I I lived in Texas <laughs> my whole life. So I actually eat uh bluebell ice cream. Oh, Aaron. So, um, but I but oh, I promise, Chris, I, I'll go get a, get a pint of Ben and Jerry's tonight. I promise. You know, Aaron, there's a lot of good ice cream in the world, and we we understand the uh, reaxis, so I will not hold it against you. <laughs> All right, thank you, Chris. All right, and with that, we'll we'll call it a day and retire for some ice cream in 30 degree weather. Uh, <laughs> So I'd really like to thank you, Chris, for coming on. It was a very enlightening talk. Thanks, Dylan, for having me. And thank you, Aaron. And happy holidays to both of you and your listeners. And a happy holidays to you too, Chris. And also to you, Aaron. Thanks for being on. Thanks, Dylan. And Chris, you know, thank you so much. I thought we got a lot of great advice out of you today, particularly the piece around, you know, driving change for what's important to your business. Um, so you don't, feel like your consumers are uh, pushed with cross marketing. I really thought it was great. So thank you, Chris. And um, thanks, Dylan. Happy, happy holidays to you, too. Yeah, even though this won't come out until January. Well, happy post-holidays. I, I hope everyone listening doesn't have too bad of post-holiday blues then. <laughs> All right. Uh, as always, you can find our research and articles at etsinsights.com. You can register for ETS at ETS18.co. You can find me on social media at DY Lockwood. And you can find Aaron at Aaron underscore Hardick. Thank you all for listening in, our, in the first year of our podcast. My name is Dylan, and we'll see you next time and throughout 2018.